I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is S. Alfonso Williams, an independent researcher based in Cleveland, Ohio. He has been immersed in the world of psychoanalysis, philosophy, and theory for the past five years, following the path of autodidacticism. Some of his numerous research interests include polyvalence, the disjunction between ontology and epistemology, psychosis, dissociation, and disavowal, everyday psychopathology, and the dimensional limits of normalcy. The irreducibility of heterogeneity and difference, identity, the limits of subjectivity, mass psychology, sexual difference, deadlocks and paradoxes of all sorts. He currently works as a circulation assistant at the Ingalls Library at the Cleveland Museum of Art. His website is theoryandanalysis.wordpress.com and he holds a bachelor's degree from Case Western Reserve University in art history and sociology. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash vanessa 23carl your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. My name is S. Alfonso Williams. Um, I live in Cleveland, based out of Cleveland. Um, I work at a library. I am not a librarian. I do circulation, which basically means that um, I shuffle all the books around and handle all the transactions with the patrons um, and whatnot and keep the the stack areas in order and all that jazz. Um, So that's why you always have so many amazing books. Yes. (laughs) So actually, the library that I work at um, is an art research library. Uh, So it's not it's not a public library. Um, so we're a little bit different in that um, we are a closed stacks library, uh, and also our books do not circulate outside of well, the greater institution is a museum, so the Cleveland Museum of Art. Um, so all of our books stay in house. Our main constituents are um, like the curators uh, and the other staff within the building. Now we are open to the public, um, so they can come in and. Um, do research, but usually if you come in, again, because our stacks are closed and 
um, basically me and uh, other staff have to go page the books from the other part of the building where the stacks are. Um, it's usually best for uh, the these individuals to come in with questions beforehand, so knowing what they want to research. That's amazing. So, what a resource. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's very cool because we have, we just passed 500,000 books, so half a million books, um, I want to say last summer. So, um, yeah, we have a crap ton of books. And, uh, <laughs> and if you're looking... If you're looking for art materials to, to to research, we probably have it. Now, I will also say that um, Cleveland, in terms of libraries, is pretty cool because our, our, our greater system, so you have like the uh, Cleveland Public Library, the Cuyahoga County Public Library, and all these little satellite subsidiary um, library systems in combination with, you know, the, the universities that are around. So between all these different library systems, um, there's no there's no reason. Well, in also in addition to Ohio Link, which is basically um, a huge network of um, shared shared library resources. So between all this, you should be able to find any any resource, any art related resource that you are looking for um, within the state of Ohio. And how did you get so, into psychoanalysis? Um, I got into psychoanalysis, I think, probably through Zizek, um, just because I was, so 2014 was sort of like the, the crossover year, um, like growing up, well, before I say that, I should probably give like a brief, brief, brief history of like sort of my life. So uh, starting like back from my grandparents, um, they came up from the South Mississippi, um, they moved to Cleveland, I think, sometime in 54 and 55. Um, see, my grandfather did a, a, a bunch of odd jobs. Uh, my grandmother also did, um, uh, like, housework and that sort of thing. Um, and then my grandfather ended up founding a church over here on the east side of Cleveland. Um, and with that, uh, he ended up writing like all the material that they would use uh, during services and all that, all that stuff. So they ended up having uh, three daughters and um, a son and his son, uh, uh, Rayford. Uh, he actually, he just passed, uh, he just passed sometime last year, actually, I believe. Um, he ended up taking over the church uh, after, after he passed. So uh, right now, the church is actually in, in the process of selling the building uh, because it's, it's just gotten uh, too old and the repairs are too much. Um, but my mom, um, also growing up in, in, the, in progress, also felt the call to ministry. Now, due to the constraints of the time, it wasn't really an acceptable thing. So um, she ended up getting there but she sort of had to uh had to work around some things so she ended up going to moody bible institute uh, which is where she met my father um and then i think see after that she ended up uh coming back to cleveland um actually ended up working at case western uh, case western reserve university where i eventually went to 
um, for a little bit, got her degree from Capital University, who had a campus downtown in Cleveland. Uh, she majored in psychology and religion, I believe. Um, and then from there, like fast forwarding, fast forwarding a bit, uh, we ended up going out to Princeton, New Jersey between 94 and 97, where she attended uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. And then we ended up coming back to Cleveland uh, for a little bit. And then during my sophomore and junior years in high school, um, we went out to St. Louis and she was pastoring a church out there. Came back to Cleveland for my senior year. And then, <laughs> and then I ended up going to Case. So um, initially when I went to Case, my intention was to do uh, computer science because growing up, like the arts was my thing. Um, specifically, uh, like fine art and music. <clears throat> um, but I soon learned that after taking the first engineering uh, 131 class, that this was not going to work out too well. <laughs> uh, so I had to sort of do some switching, like on the fly. And I ended up switching to art history and sociology because it felt a little bit more uh, intuitive. But really, all the way through um, college, I didn't really feel like I had a, 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 a strong pull uh, towards something concrete in terms of making the transition into like the real job world. So, um, so that was a bit of a a, a, a struggle in itself. So then, come graduation, May of 2008, ended up graduating, looking for a job between then and the end of the year. And then I ended up um, ended up applying to a job, a library page position um, in Maple, Ohio, at a library at a county library, um, and ended up getting the job. So I stayed at that job for probably about a year and a half. Uh, and then I applied, I found the, the, the open position, um, for my position, uh, in the summer of 2008, no, no, the summer of the summer of 2010. Yeah. Summer 2010. Um, and then I ended up getting that and I've, I've been there ever since. That's amazing. You've so, been there almost 10 years. Yeah, man. It's definitely crazy because it, it doesn't feel like it. It really does not feel like it. So uh, to get back to your original question, um, I was very like music and arts heavy still in between 2010 and 2014. Like I was going to a lot of shows trying to, you know, really soak that up. Uh, but then at some point uh, in artwork and in music, I had I hit a uh, some sort of a limit. Like in artwork, I didn't really feel like I had anything to say. Um, and music-wise, I felt it was... I'd hit a point, like, because my, my thing was guitar. So I was playing guitar, and my background was sort of um, metal-based, more or less. Um, and I was trying to transition into some other areas, like jazz and um, like gospel guitar. But uh, Cleveland is interesting because you have you have a lot of... A lot of musicians here but trying to find um guitarists in those particular realms was a little bit difficult and i couldn't find it at the time that i needed it so i took that as a sign 
and decided to put music down all together. And after that, after I did that, that was when I really started sort of uh, going to the bookstore a little bit more um, and just digging into the philosophical interests that were already there, like under the surface, but um, I hadn't really formally explored up until that point. And then from there, after jumping into the deep end, it was a wrap. So that's why I, uh, I started this uh, this library that I have in here of an obscene amount of books. Uh, the number of will I, I will not mention <laughs> because it's embarrassing. Um, but yeah, and then from there, um, somehow I came across Zizek, and then from there, uh, Lacan, and then I started just you know making the circuit, making the rounds. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me because that's where psychoanalysis has really survived is like in the arts and humanities and film. That's where people are talking about the theory. Like I have a, a degree in psychology and we didn't talk about, like I never heard of Lacan when I, when I got my doctorate and we only read Freud like one paper. I mean, they don't even talk about it in psychology, but like in humanities really? and the art. Yeah. It's really crazy. <laughs> But in wow. the humanities and the arts and stuff, it's like really alive and vibrant. Wow. Wow. You know, because I felt like I, I mean, I did sociology and, you know, that's a whole other thing. But, um, you know, again, as I was passing through that, you know, the, the Piaget and, and all these other other thinkers in there, um, I sort of felt a little bit regret at having done that and not having done psychology because usually like in going forward uh, towards graduate degrees, I felt the, the they were asking more for the psychology as opposed to the sociology. Um, so I felt a little bit sort of like maybe I uh, derailed myself a little bit in not having gone that route, which would have made certain things easier at the time. Um, but given what you just said, um, that is very not. interesting. Yeah, I'm also from Miami, so my school was in Fort Lauderdale, and I literally didn't, I never even heard of Lacan until I moved to New York. So I think if maybe if you go to grad school or something in New York or San Francisco or something, you get more psychoanalysis, but in, definitely not in the South. <laughs> wow. Wow. Mm. That is That is crazy. Okay. Yeah, man, I mean... In, I mean, in my reading, I mean, a lot of the books I have are, you know, dedicated to psychoanalysis um, and not so much psychology proper. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know. I guess I've not really been in any environments to really see how the contemporary psychologist, you know, reacts against the contemporary psychoanalyst to really get that um to see the difference concretely like in front of my face um i mean i know that you know where we are is it's very you know neuro based um digging into the 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 micro features of of physiology and using that as a um predictive element to 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 try and know what the the human subject uh, is sort of ahead of itself. Um, but 
again because I'm not that's not like my my orientation and my framework. I don't really know how they're reacting to themselves within the field and what they see as their limits and what they think may be coming after this point of neuro or uh, neuro-based research. So, um, so yeah, it's it's interesting because uh, you know here we are in, in about to hit 2020. Um, somewhat closer to some of the questions that we've been asking ourselves about what what is the the human being capable of um still asking ourselves questions that folks like plato uh and the greeks were asking back in the day that we still don't have answers to um and at the same time seeing seeing the human being make this sort of uh, transcendent leap into the the post-human, you know, merging with technology in certain ways and adapting to technology uh, in ways that we thought we would, but also rejecting it in ways that we didn't think that we would. So there's a there's definitely some some weird parallel um, conversations and reactions going on that. Uh, that I think psychoanalysis definitely has commentary on and can provide a lot of insight for that the uh, institutions that sort of have the the foothold on things um, could benefit from, like psychology. I totally agree. And you mentioned post-human, and I just have to tell you, this is one of the things I wanted to tell you. Um, gotcha. So I'm starting, I'm going to this conference tomorrow, and it's uh, called Qu Qu the First International Queer Death Conference, like queering, mourning, and transition. Um, it's mm -hmm. about death and the post-human and all of these wonderful things. And I'm starting my paper with a quote of yours. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, I'm too honored and, 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 and too humbled. Yeah, it's That's... so good. Can I oh, read? Wow. Well, you'll know it, but I'm going to read it. Of course, this episode won't come on until after I get back because I have to get up at like five in the morning, like I said. But anyway, oh, yeah. I should probably interview the, the conference organizers after, after this conference, too. But it's this. The dead present much more of a presence to me than the living. The graveyard of history always conjures up interesting people from which their knowledge can be absorbed and regurgitated in new ways. This is in contrast with the contemporary living, which always feels like a panopticon of the undead, those caught between life and death in a catatonic state of anxiety. The dead are much better, more proficient teachers than the living. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I can tell you what that was a reaction to. Uh, that is that was a reaction to sort of um, a lingering anxiety that has been with me for a while about what happens when a person digs so deep in a in a direction of knowledge that they become. Um, uh, sort of in a in a in their own bubble, still connected to main society, but but main society doesn't have like an epistemology to relate back to them. So, for example, 
I mean, specializing in any in any degree is probably the the easiest example. So somebody who becomes a neurosurgeon, you know, you spend all all of this time, energy, money, uh, investing to get this knowledge to create a career for yourself that you spend eight to twelve hours a day doing. Uh, so within that environment. You know, you have people around you that sort of understand, but then when you leave that job, you go home um, to your family and to your friends, uh, nobody really knows what you're talking about. You know, you walk on the street, nobody knows what you're talking about. So you spend all of this time split between a very small minority who understand you and a very large majority who don't understand you, but yet you're moving between in a way, um, and as uh, as a professional in that occupation, helping both people. So, um, so really, it was it's part of a reaction to, you know, what happens when um, when the frustration builds between not being able to be understood because of your interest in this particular thing. So that's when. You know, someone like me ends up going to libraries and digging through books, you know, coming across all this information, trying to synthesize it um, and relate it back to the world. But, you know, even through the discourse, you end up split again between the people who do understand the bits and pieces of what you're saying and then the general public who don't have an orientation toward it. So in your explanations and in your talking about it, you always have to, um, you're always riding this line. You're serving two masters. Um, so that's, that's part of that, part of that frustration. Um, and, you know, in, in reference, you know, to the, the undead, you know, I was thinking about, uh, I don't know the exact the exact uh, example that that Derrida uses, but I read it in um, read about it in one of the one of the books that I'd come across, you know, and just this undead being not being able to be put to rest, not totally one thing, not totally the other, um, and so when when you're talking about trying to learn from people in the contemporary that are living. Um, you know, you're trying to get answers because you have questions and they can't give you all the answers, but yet you have an entire history uh, catalog through, you know, history books, all this uh, um, specialized knowledge catalog in the books. And so you end up turning towards them and not towards living people. So it almost feels backwards because you're trying to learn, you know, from, from your contemporaries. You're trying to you're trying to learn from the world as it is, as it exists in this moment, and yet you can't because your answers seem to be more uh, able to be fleshed out by all of this um, discourse that's through books. So that's and the where more all that time you from. spend with books, the more the more misunderstood. <laughs> yeah. I, at least yeah. I feel. I feel like all yeah. of these uh, quotes that you write or these musings, I'm like, oh, I feel seen. You understand. 
feel like yeah, the more man. I read and the more I give talks, the less people have any idea what I'm talking about. That's what I feel yeah. like. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, I mean, if so, the stuff that I post, um, are is sort of weird because my writing process really is not. I don't consider it a a, a a conscious thing per se. So when I write something, it is usually very uh, spontaneous and uh, sort of like maybe an unconscious reaction to the stuff that I've been accumulating at the time. So it's so my basic day is structured like this, like Monday through Friday. I'm out of the house from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, between 6 p.m. at midnight is when, you know, I have like my block of time to sort of, you know, do what I want. Um, I don't have a car. So part of that 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. block um, outside of being at work is commuting. So I spend a lot of time like on a clock, on a rigid schedule, trying to, you know, get from here to there and, and whatnot. But that 6 p.m. to midnight block, um, you know, also is sort of caught up in stuff that I don't necessarily want to do, you know, like eating, you know, I have to spend time eating, cooking dinner. Um, you know, I also have to, you know, exercise, which is important. You know, I want my body to function, you know, between now and, you know, those, those late old ages, you know, in a, in a less, in a, in a pain-free, as pain-free way as possible. So, you know, I put in ex uh, exercise every day. So between, when you factor all that in, that's probably about a good three hours. So really I'm sort of left with, you know, maybe a good two hours to really sit down, read, um, you know, and, and anything else that may be, may pertain to, you know, reading about psychoanalysis, philosophy and all that stuff. You know, I even feel bad because I'm not always able to keep up with contemporary politics in real time. Oftentimes that ends up being sacrificed, you know, because then you also, have to factor in like social media time you know i mean i know a lot of folks try and cut that out but it's not always possible when when the institutions that you follow are on these you know these uh you know like facebook and twitter and whatnot because that's their main source of getting disseminating information so i sort of have to be on there to follow and, and catch up so when you factor all this together you know it's 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 difficult to really uh compact all of this in into this, you know, little bit of time because it's just, you know, contemporary life is just too hypersaturated. Yeah, but the musings are so great. It's great that you write in a spontaneous kind of associative way because that's letting the unconscious speak and that's that's the whole point. I feel like I gave a talk last week and I, I felt like there was something that wasn't getting... Uh, transmitted that to the mm. audience and then i realized afterwards i was like maybe the thing that wasn't understood is like the whole point of psychoanalysis it isn't just a theory of how it works but the actual work of it is to be like more able to allow your unconscious to to speak and to come out and that that's that's the goal you know and it's like we can think about all the different ways to make that happen and the things that are in the unconscious and what all that theory is about all of those things but that at the end of the day it's just it's really about the process of like being able to have that kind of creative 
unconscious flow and to be able to just write that's probably why they they're all so like on the money they're like oh they all hit hit a chord you know yeah definitely definitely um you know there's all sorts of autonomic processes that occur you know in our body um that are necessary for us to function you know it, you know when you think about when you think about comic books and you think about some of these uh folks who have special abilities like we can take like mystique from the x-men you know from the films or whatnot who supposedly is able to manipulate her body all of her molecules at will um to mimic you know whatever she sees it sounds great but then you also have to factor in you know if you're going to take a realistic uh perspective you know ultimately what that means like for her ontology so does that mean that she all the time has to sort of consciously think about her molecules or um maintain a certain tension that an average person wouldn't necessarily have to do um so i know you know a lot of folks think superhero films and and whatnot and you know comic mythology is, is sort of corny and you know not relatable past a certain point you know past childhood but uh i mean really a lot of that is is just as relevant just as um the lessons that you get from it are just as uh significant as any you know serious piece of literary fiction that you may read um that's on the the top 40 list uh, i mean i'm sort of i'm a little bit biased because comics were important for me in my upbringing because that was where my creativity and my imagination flourished like i remember back in uh it must have been first grade i was in art class and we were doing still lives of these this, these plants and the teacher must have been so impressed by um, the drawing that I did that I remember her pulling me aside after class to show me like works from um, like Monet and uh, you know all these guys. But at the time, I mean, of course, being in first grade, I didn't have a way to relate to that. My way in to artwork was through comics and through these people that had extraordinary abilities um that allowed me to to further um what possible meant so it wasn't until much 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 later like high school you know even into college that i had that i had in an epistemology to really be able to relate to the work of these great artists um so sometimes Again, I mean, the, the, the typical way that everybody makes it from point A to point B is not, this, is not always the way or the most efficient way for certain people. Um, I think clearly there's, I mean, I feel like it's, it clearly has a lot of resonance with a lot of people because it's like there's so much comic book and like hero culture that's like permeates in films and music and TV and movies and everything. Um, yeah. I feel like there's like generations now of people 
that were inspired and affected. And I, I also feel like you said, like, the, the, all the different special abilities, like, usually all the heroes, like, you know, are an outsider in some way, or they can't tell people about certain things, and, it may, and a lot of people can relate, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, when we talk about history and mythology, um, we end up telling ourselves uh, a lot of the same stories in different ways about the same type of relationships that we are always engaged in. So, I mean, if we take like the basic relationship of the subject and the other, you know, if you look at it as some sort of essential relation that you cannot get out of, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can look at this relationship, which is, you know, the history of philosophy and what psychoanalysis digs into. Um, but, uh, you know, because the state of the world is a heterogeneous place, that everything is different, um, that there is really, there is no genuine uh, formulation of sameness, that sameness is, is a subjective sort of covering and artificiality over the uh, difference in order to make it comprehensible from a subjective position. Um, you know, if the human, the human being needs a way to sort of make all of this comprehensible without being overwhelmed. So, um, so we have, so we have ways like, you know, again, like literary fiction, um, science fiction, um, uh, other modes of communicating, uh, you know, all these different ways of trying to relate to somebody, relate to something, to this thing that surface-wise, aesthetically, uh, we we can only get so far. You know, it's it's not really possible to get to the core of the thing. Not that the core is is something concrete, but to sort of know it in its totality. So, in order to compensate for this. We have to find other methodologies of, 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 of achieving that as some sort of substitute. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that you're wearing my favorite shirt. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> this I is am. genius. The greatest I trick am. Lacan ever pulled was convincing the world the big other did not exist. Yeah, man. I was, uh, I don't know how I thought about that. I was just, uh, I think I just happened to be thinking about the usual spe uh, suspects one day and how I hadn't watched it in a while. And then I thought about, you know, Lacan and all of his, you know, his catchphrases that he would just, um, you know, put out there and then further elaborate on in some obscure way. Um, man, if, if Lacan was alive today, he would definitely be in the t-shirt business because he would be able to sell these shirts like wildfire especially if he had his uh, his seminars going man i mean in in addition to the money that he was already banking he could have a whole nother side business going on yeah but we have today. you <laughs> <laughs> you have to make an etsy shirt of lacan t-shirts <laughs> oh my god oh my god i mean shoot 
uh, it's, it's definitely Dress a all the analysts. <laughs> right. <laughs> just go to conferences, like just set up at a side table. Oh my God. But, uh, but yeah, man. Um, so I will definitely try and get you one, you know, again, as we discussed before, um, you know, Vistaprint does these, uh, these sales and whatnot. So, um, as soon as they do one, I can, we can do that and I can, I can get it to you. So it's genius. So, yeah, but no, nah, man, I mean, it was, it was, a. It was just like again one of those spontaneous moment things. I was like, man, that fits really well, and then decided to do a throw it onto a shirt one day. Mm-hmm. So unconscious genius. Um, yeah. I want to make sure we talk about two. Well, which one first? You went to the Acree conference. Yes, and I have to thank my I have to thank my mother and brother for that because they were the ones who were able to, you know, on that short notice. Uh, throw the money and contribute the money in order to get me there and and back. So you know, my mom went down with me because she sponsored the uh, the hotel stay and all that. But yeah, definitely a shout out to my brother and my mom for making that happen. Man, How was that, it? The conference was was awesome. So you know, uh, you know, just looking over here at all the books that I have on the floor by all these authors, and then being able to be in that room with a lot of those authors there. Um, that was definitely an immersive experience. Um, so between hearing some of these folks, um, give papers and, and talks, um, hearing, you know, other, other individuals, um, psychoanalysts and graduate students speak on their respective topics. Um, and they're all great people. Like they're fun. Lacanian analysts are fun. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, man, it was uh it was very cool. And that I'd been to Pittsburgh before, um, attending shows downtown, but that was really my first um encounter with uh Duquesne Duquesne's campus and really like sort of being over there in that element. Um so that was also cool too. I mean Pittsburgh man is, is really interesting because um I like to compare Pittsburgh against Cleveland and downtown Columbus. So Pittsburgh is like somebody decided to go up into a mountain and then drop a city right into like <laughs> right into like a cavern. And then you have Columbus, I mean then you have Cleveland which is like right along the lake but also shaped like a bicycle spoke. So you have all these main streets that sort of emerge out from from the center of downtown. Uh, and then you have Columbus, which is like very grid and structured like so. Um, but no, Pittsburgh is, is very, very cool because everything is walkable in distance, very close. So if you want to have um, a very cool downtown experience with lots of stuff around that doesn't really take a lot of effort to um, to traverse downtown, Pittsburgh is is the place to be. Definitely. And let's see. So Isabel Millar was there, right? And Amanda Deeserholt yes. and did, yes. Patricia Giovici and yes. Celeste Petrusa, Derek Hook, Callum Neal, yes. Stephen Hule. Yes, uh, a number of those folks I definitely got to meet and speak to in person, and it was it was it was cool. So I was trying to just make I was trying to keep my cool the the whole time really and not not appear like a like a fanboy you know <laughs> but all of them um 
all of them gave, you know, if not if not excellent talks, then very good commentary um, about psychoanalysis, about the research they were doing. Um, and and it was just good to to be in the moment and knowing what what other people are doing with um, with a field that other people think is not as valuable as others. So um, if anything, that conference shows that uh, there is a thriving psychoanalytic community, um, not just you know, within Lacan, but with other um, other researchers and, and other orientations that psychoanalysis can be applied to um, in, in a multitude of different ways. Yeah, I think that's so, what's so great and all those different people, like all their work is so different, but it's all yeah. using like a psychoanalytic lens, but like exploring yes. like Isabel's exploring like artificial intelligence and, and like robots and that sort of thing. Um, and Amanda Disserhold's exploring like fatigue and what that means and that fatigue is resistance and that sort of thing. So it's like everybody's got like a different niche, um, but the psychoanalytic lens can help help to look at it. Yeah, totally. Um, and then that brings me to you wrote a paper on a uh, book review on decolonial psychoanalysis. And yes. Robert Bashara is the next guest. So yes, 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 yes. This is yes, wonderful. Much, yes, much thanks to him and uh, Laura Cariola at Language and Psychoanalysis, uh, the journal. Uh, thanks to both of them for being able to make that review happen. Um, I, Robert happened to post that he was looking for reviewers. Um, and, you know, I had a conversation to him and, and brought it up sort of casually. Um, and he said, I mean, go for it. And that, so that review is my first, you know, officially, you know, uh, scholarly publication ever. So, and it's great. I'm, I'm glad it turned out well. Uh, it was definitely, it was definitely an interesting process. And I'm, I'm again, I'm glad to Robert and Laura for uh, being able to make that, that possible. Um, so yeah, so yeah, thanks to, thanks to them. And, um, yeah, his book is very timely because uh, with all the stuff that is going on in America, you know, and, uh, you know, overseas and whatnot with with leaders who are using certain groups as scapegoats and sort of putting the fire under behaviors that that should not be happening uh, in relating to these people and really all people in general. Um, when what what Robert does with that book is uses Lacanian uh, discourse analysis and um, critical psychology to really look at the experiences of these individuals and uh, really dig out what is what's happening beyond the superficial surface. So um, he really digs into you know Islamophobia and the the uh, effects and the uh, uh, consequences of what happens when when these these discourses are allowed to sort of proliferate um, sort of wildly and uh, I wish there was a way you know sort of like without without 
diluting the content of the book that we could get it out into the mainstream uh, in, a, in, a, in a comprehensive, I mean, the book is already comprehensible. His prose is excellent. His prose is, is, is phenomenal in terms of like making all this uh, discourse explainable. But, you know, again, when you start talking about language and simplification, you know, it's, it's very hard to, to narrow something down without, in, without sort of losing stuff in the, in the process. So I wish there was a way that we could get more people talking about it uh, in, in a way that would be um, easy for the, the, the very, very, you know, lay person um, to understand without you know, wanting to knock their head against the wall. But the book is excellent. I think everybody should read it. Um, and, and he really did a good job with that. Yeah, and I love the way, so I only learned about this book um, when I interviewed Lara Sheehy, who's doing the Division 39 conference, and she was talking about decolonial psychoanalysis. And before that, I knew like Derek Hook's work and like post-colonial, and now I'm understanding the difference between post-colonial and decolonial, and I'm so into this. And, um, and I love the way, because a big argument in psychoanalysis, like when I was in training, is that like, oh, we can't be too political, and like they don't want to talk about um, politics. And uh, a really great analyst that I respect named um, Jay Frankel was at a conference on psychoanalysis and politics that Lynette Oste did here in Stockholm in May. And we mm -hmm. were talking about this issue, and he said that at least in New York, it was because like so many people had emigrated over to New York after the war and like they didn't want, you know, they went from like Nazi Germany to like America and like McCarthyism and the Red Scare and all of these things. And so they were trying to like stay out of it, which is completely right. understandable. Um, but right. it's kind of turned into this thing where uh, it's like, like I was taught in training, like, oh, we don't, you don't ever like talk about public figures or like try to diagnose them or try to like put psychoanalytic ideas of the individual mind onto the society but like to me it's often pretty clear <laughs> like how it's connected right. like and what's going on with the individual can also kind of be played out in the group i don't know um but it seems like this like newer generation of analysts is, is seeing how it's connected <laughs> and like like robert says right in the beginning like the personal is political and like he lays out in the beginning like this is where I'm coming from you know this is my background and like you did even in the beginning of this episode like before I start talking let me kind of give you my family's history and like when I talked right. to Lara like she rooted um, the conversation in like uh, the indigenous uh, land that she was on like she began like that like let's talk about where I'm coming from and this land that I'm on now and that's exactly this paper that I'm giving uh, this week at this queer death conference is about like we need to go back to like this like idea of like ancestry and roots and the traumas of uh, previous generations and, and not just our personal traumas because it's all connected and it's all related and until we start working through our history and the traumas of generations and of the land that we're on like we're never gonna we're never gonna get anywhere yeah it's uh yeah history and, and, and genealogy is is very important because I mean we wouldn't be here without it and it informs our our everyday um, so in reference to what you mentioned about um, analysts being 
persuaded to not to not use their knowledge uh, in reference to societal society and, and, and greater culture. Um, from an institutional standpoint, I mean, I do understand because you know inst- institutions and their constituents have a very strange relationship. The constituents individually and as a whole are not the institution. There's always this this impossible divide for them to cross because you know again they can they can be separated from the institution and the institution can still remain. So the institution uh, as a level of sovereignty um, sort of exists as this meta thing that always carries a certain level of power and dominance over the people. Um, but, you know, you can't talk about your environment or not talk about certain things without that discourse always coming back to you. So, so as an analyst, I mean, yes, you cannot have certain conversations with, um, with your, with your patients to avoid very certain messy, uh, you know, implications and outcomes. But, you know, as soon as you leave the job and you go home and you become inundated in your regular life, um, this is the same thing that every, everybody else is doing. So you can't, you know, you can't go back into your work environment and situation and, and professionalism with this lingering in the background, knowing that in a certain way it is still informing um, the conversations and the, and the discourses that you're having throughout the rest of your your workday. So, um, so yes, on a certain institutional professional level, I get it, but we still have to find a way to talk about it in such a way um, and really sort of dig at the problems that are going on that is informative um, and traces it back to, you know, as far as, as far as possible to the, the roots of, of these endemic problems uh, without sort of, uh, without sacrificing the structures that we, you know, that we build on a day-to-day uh, basis to survive. So um, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird balance that we sort of construct for ourselves as human beings um, that we can't sort of get out of. It's, just, it's a feedback loop that we, that we feed, but at the same time try to get away from, but we, but we can't. So, but it, I mean, but it is definitely a problem. It's definitely a problem. So I, I, don't, I don't know a, a good way to, to, to get around that. We just sort of have to, we have to, we have to do it and we have to, we have to own it and we have to um, acknowledge ourselves, you know, in the process. Yeah, and I think this idea of like um, acknowledging who you are, like who we are as individuals and how we are placed in society and relate to society based on like where we were born and all of these kinds of things makes sense because even in like when when you know you conduct an analysis or go through an analysis you see like 
you know, I became a psychoanalyst because of these things in my life that happened that like led me in this direction. And you can, you can see how it plays out in your own life and you can see how it plays out in other people's lives. And it doesn't just happen with analysts. With any, any career you have or any interest you have, there's a reason kind of for all of it. So I think like learning to like self-reflect and locate yourself in that way to see how you are influenced and and how you are influencing and what your kind of motive motives are because there are motives and motivations um is a good place to start i guess yeah totally totally um and i think i think eric from um in the approach that he took towards psychoanalysis uh I sort of touched on a, a lot of a lot of these things in the way that he did um but um I love Eric Fromm lately. He like makes he's so resonant with this times that we're living in. I feel like. Yeah, I started. I really started listening to uh, some of his his talks that I was I was able to find on on YouTube, um, like earlier in the summer and late late spring. And man, he was a really really interesting guy with a lot of clarity. Um, and see, now I'm gonna want to go back and, and listen to it later on today because he just. He just had a lot of good things to say, and even even the way he wrote about what he was talking about was very clear, um, and just made a lot of a lot of important connections. So Eric Fromm is is definitely a, a very very cool guy. Um, but um, oh man, I was going to say something, but I totally lost my thought. Um, That's my fault. No, no, it's okay. It's I didn't okay. know there was I, I, Eric Fromm on YouTube. That's amazing. <laughs> now I'm gonna yeah. have to look that up. Oh my God, there's so many. See, so go start going down the rabbit hole with YouTube. You'll find so much stuff, man. Psychoanalysts are on YouTube. Yeah, a lot of a lot of you know mid late 20th century you know these thinkers. You'll find either audio transcriptions or 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 even video of some of these folks, man. Like I just found a, a, a small clip of uh, Theodore Adorno, um, of him talking to somebody on YouTube yesterday. And I was like, holy cow. Um, now there's a lot more, um, uh, there's a lot more Marcuse talks of him, you know, uh, giving, uh, uh, giving conversations, but, but not so much, uh, not so much Adorno. So, but again, I mean, these are the types of things that you can find, you know, thank God for YouTube and, and whatnot for people digging up all this archival stuff, putting it into a public domain, you know, for you know, uh, redissem redissemination and reabsorption back into our society so that we can, you know, reflect on these things and reconsider how, how we can um, analyze our, pers our perspectives. Um, in relation to them so that we can you know come up with new formulations of, of how to relate to society and whatnot so there's so much stuff on youtube man it's, it's terrible <laughs> i never even thought of think looking up psychoanalysts on youtube this is going to be a whole new thing i've just been listening to like other podcasts like new books and psychoanalysis and things like that but now i have to go to youtube it's See, amazing it's such an opportunity this moment with like we have so much information and everyone in the world is so much more connected than than at any time ever yes now see the, the podcast thing i mean i know there's 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 a lot out there but i haven't really dug 
as deep into that world as I as I could. And so I know that's a whole nother rabbit hole that, you know, is just waiting for me to, to get sucked in. But as you just mentioned, you know, yes, there is there's a lot of content out there. Um, so, again, so in referencing back to, you know, my work day and trying to consider how to factor all of this, all this content, all this material to be absorbed within a small amount of time. Um, you know, it becomes it becomes sort of a, you start to see how difficult it is for the average individual to know about certain things in the world because if you take I me mean, if you take the position that you know again like heterogeneity is, is like one of the things that has really been like informing a lot of a lot of my thoughts just how natural difference exists as it is but again in order for subjectivity to subsist in order for it to be in the world without being overwhelmed by this difference um, it has to, it's forced to reduce and simplify things uh, so you know it's hard for it's hard to to look at you know your your other constituent um, political constituent or or uh, you know whoever and expect them to know certain things when where we are now, there's so much information to know that you have to put up blocks and you have to put up filters. Um, and, you know, to come back to the you know, psychoanalysis, you know, what does this do to the subject when more than before they have to put up barriers around themselves to, in order for the world to remain comprehensible? And with all of these blocks, what is it that they allow through um, to both understand the other and then also use to understand themselves in the process. So it becomes a very complicated and I think messy process, uh, especially for in the direction that we're heading with the merging of um, synthetic and organic uh, materials. So, um, yeah, so we're definitely in a, in a, in a, in a paradigm, paradigm shift. I mean, there's nothing like this, you know, so far as we know, uh, that has happened in, in human history. So we're definitely at a, at a crossing point. What do you think about the post-human and the transhuman? Um... Usually, I mean, my basic my basic perspective is that I like I like the new. So when it, you know, in terms of like the arts and just you know books and literature and every, everything in general, I like to see what's coming because that's what feeds me in my creativity and my responsiveness to just existing at all. I like to see what other people are doing, what what's happening, the, the reactionary stuff, the stuff that, you know, is not changing so much and how all of these things uh, relate to one another. So uh, in terms of like, uh, you know, moving into a, 
maybe a ghost in the shell type type of environment. Um, I think for me, it's it's less about the physical transition and then and more so what what it means for my mind to be my own. So one of the like one of the thoughts that I had had recently was about uh, the sort of the ontological difference between duplication and replication. So as I formulated it to myself, <clears throat> a replication is basically like a, a your your basic factory um, factory process. This you have this machine that pumps out these things, these objects that look the same. Now they're not ontologically the same because they can all be weathered and affected differently. This is in contrast to duplication, to where you're you're saying that there is something similar in every single way to an object as it is in the world. And so my logical thought from that was if there was a duplication of something, me as an observer, I wouldn't necessarily be able to know that the duplication was there because they're the same in being. So they're really one. Um, so really that this object that I'm looking at could have, you know, hundreds, millions, you know, billions of duplications within itself. And I would never know. So, um, um, already that quickly, I lost what, where my point was going. Um, what did you ask me before that? Well, I was, I've been thinking about this too, um, about the post-human and the transhuman. Oh yeah. Yeah. The post-human transhuman. Um, so, oh yeah. And so that, the sort of duplication replication thing led me to the idea of, you know, what possession really means. So, you know, when we look at movies um, and we hear accounts of spiritual possession, um, so relating it back to the way that I had formulated duplication and replication, that tells me that something, an object, a spirit, uh, that is of completely different form is able to inhabit something of a totally different form and still be undetectable, you know, at an, at an ontological level. Um, so when you start going into like philosophy of mind and, uh, considering circuits and, um, what duplication and replication <clears throat> and things like redundancy, you know, uh, looks like at that level, um, the world starts to look very, very different. I don't know necessarily what a mind looks like when it can be um, hijacked and uh, manipulated in certain ways that a mind can't be now. So uh, boundaries of separateness, togetherness, um, 
relational ties like love you know what does that look like um and all of these things so those are the things that sort of sort of wear at me when i think about post-human and transhuman um um, society uh i don't really qualify it necessarily as good or bad um because again i don't uh i can't i can't really say because it's not it's not the here and now but but i will say that it is definitely interesting it will pose um interesting challenges to things like aesthetics law um uh, relationships sovereignty um all of these things you know what will happen to the, the physical world as we know it when people are existing at a at a meta level that doesn't really necessarily need that tie to the real world in the way that we do now yeah and so, it's already happening in a way with like this whole big data thing and like how they how all these guys who collect data and harvest data and analyze it say that like oh we know you better than you know yourselves we know what you're gonna like we know what you're gonna do we know where you're gonna be (laughs) yeah man totally i mean it's even as basic as the ads popping up you know when you surf uh related to things and interests that you've that you've been clicking on you know for or just talking week. about now. Now you just yeah. talk about it and it hears you and puts up the ad. Yeah, Siri, Siri, and all these, all these folks. You know, Siri is always listening. That's you know, <laughs> Big Brother. All these films that you know, sort of reference like Big Brother listening in the background. Is this is it? Mm-hmm. This is it in the here and now. So and it's and it's only going to become more efficient um, as we as we move forward. So. But uh, but I think you know Zizek also sort of references you know what um, in some of his talks um, how you know, Big Brother in this way sort of also has to deal with the implications of having too much data. So it's not that it's not that they know you super well. Um, because of your specific interest is that it's formulating an idea of what you of what it thinks you are and using that as an overlay to you so you become this thing that you're not that you're really not but you have to wear it in relation to this this sovereignty so now um, it doesn't really matter whether you are yourself or not you just become something and uh and you have to deal with uh, the repercussions of that so um so yeah that's a that's a pretty extreme thought <laughs> that's good that's yeah. <laughs> is there anything else you want to talk about or should we stop there should we leave everyone like that <laughs> um, man, i mean we could, we could go all ominous <laughs> all day but it's really um, true yeah that was a great um, way of putting it of explaining it doesn't matter it thinks it knows you better than you know yourself and it has an idea of what you are this is the big other thing it has an idea of what you are and so then you are that thing in relation to it whether you are or not yeah 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 so and then you um, internalize I mean, that 
It's like even with simple things like like I don't really like posting selfies, you know, but like if I post a picture of myself, I get like 300 likes. And if I post like some like Lacan quote, I get like three likes, you know what I mean? So then it makes yeah, me like do the thing that gets all the likes, even though I don't really like to do that. Yeah, see, that's all like, you know, BF Skinner stuff and, you know, operant behaviorism and, and, and that sort of thing. But I mean, if we think about it in a different way, it's you know what is it that orients the individual toward toward a, in in you know a simple image as opposed to knowledge that would edify them or allow them to see the world in a in a different way that they wouldn't have before and you know it's really it's a really it's a deep question because it's something that we encounter every day and when we talk about you know like aesthetics and valuative judgments um so we're really essentially talking about perception uh we use aesthetics to inform ourselves about the world um, we rely on perception, you know, specifically visual perception, uh, and we have to make judgments about this, uh, about things in the world that may or may not be true in relation to the thing in itself. And by consequence, because of the way we are ontologically constructed, we have to accept these things and move forward as if they were a truth. Um, otherwise, again, we would be reduced um, and incapacitated by all of the, the difference that we would recognize in the world. So we have to make these judgments for our own um, survival. And so because of that, because everybody um, is different in body and in mind, uh, it creates this sort of meta phenomena that we know as society and all of the challenges and problems and complications that come with it um, as a sort of uh, insoluble mix of, of stuff. You know, it's not something that you can get rid of. You just sort of have to navigate through it and, you know, sort of whatever uh, consequentially happens in the process is just something that happens. So when you start you know, factoring in other things like ethics, um, it becomes really problematic because my basic sort of contention with the idea of ethics as it's formulated is that if you take what is considered ethical and then you take what is considered unethical, it's like you have ethics becomes the dependent variable and the unethical becomes this independent variable with a lot of freedom. And if you were to consider, um, you know, like the unethical as Lex Luthor and, Super, and Superman as the ethical, you know, Superman wouldn't be Superman if he just reduced himself to the level of Lex Luthor in order to get rid of him. The complex with Superman is that he's supposed to be, he's supposed to represent 
ethical, which means he has certain limits that he cannot cross. Luther is supposed to represent the unethical, no limits. He can do whatever he wants and, you know, whatever the consequences are, that's it. As, super, as soon as Superman becomes Lex Luthor, there is no ethics, right? So, you know, in the everyday, you know, when we turn to things like law to adjudicate between um, individuals and their problems, um, you know, you start getting into, you know, what is law using as an epistemology to resolve these problems that uh, may not be resolvable. So what is it that law is really doing in the process, in this adjudication process, um, to turn these insoluble problems into temporary workable solutions? And that's like a whole other rabbit hole that, you know, you can sort of get into. Um, but, yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely complicated. And, you know, moving into the post-human and, and transhuman society, you know, all these things are going to are going to get sort of turned over and you'll really have to sit down and think about it. And, you know, we talk about Freud and, you know, the desire for pleasure um, and, you know, social media as an escape from the world, it, it, you start to wonder how, how much can the average individual escape from the world and not deal with these problems if they want to continually, you know, move in this technological direction. So there's a burden of responsibility uh, that the average individual is sort of putting to the side, but it's building back up and it's going to catch up to them um, in order to live in the, the type of society that we live in today and, and moving forward. Returning so, repressed. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, man, it, it gets uh, it gets very deep very, very quickly. <laughs> That's where we should stop. Gotcha. Return of the repressed. <laughs> yes. So, uh, but yeah, man, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to be on here. And I mean, just to talk about you, I went on your website and just across the top, you have all of these different categories of things that you are involved in. I don't know how you sleep. I don't know how you sleep and, and get all of these things done. I mean, between the art, between the music, between the podcast, between the interviews, between uh, the publications that you're doing, you know, everything that you're doing with Carl, um, all of these things, man, it's crazy. It's crazy, but it's awesome because, you know, um, you know, at least for me, you know, that's my idea of a, of a, a lived life, you know, putting all this creative energy into pursuits that you can, you know, put out into the world and just give your sense, give yourself a, a sense of fullness every day when you go to sleep, you know, that I did all this stuff and I can turn around and do it again tomorrow and do more of it and do more of it and do more of it and never become exhausted. You know, I might get tired in the meantime. I may need a break here and there, but you know, this this sort of well of creativity 
is just always always bubbling beneath and you know at my disposal and I can you know I can I can do do anything so uh thanks to you for you know being this bubble of of creativity and 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 wellspring that further allows for other people you know like me and Isabel to sort of hop on and add to to uh to create this uh um this uh, sort of expenditure uh, about psychoanalysis and other creative endeavors uh, to explain to the world. So, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with S. Alfonso Williams an independent researcher based in Cleveland, Ohio. For more, please visit his website, theoryandanalysis.wordpress.com and follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All of the links can be found in the text below this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Can I record this? Honesty is the key to this. To everything. You can't be creative in any field whatsoever if you're not honest with yourself. A long time ago, I formulated myself basically for myself only like a declaration in hubris and soon they would tip the scale and both why not God reflected but and this I want the courage an audacity to believe in my creation, rewriting artistic expression. A towards everything, inside out, not vice, 
synchronicities galore. The essence of magic, genuine hope of a divine plan, moderation but still away instead, in contempt and for posterity, access could never misuse, laughed at the joke, I could see that it had done service before, and that the whole explanation was simply an elaborate sell. I couldn't cope, but I, financial control. If wealth, prosperity, and affluence bring a greater sense of non-distraction and a possibility to focus more on the artistic process, then there's nothing tracks out as she comes forward, off in the opposite direction, as she, thoughtful and preoccupied, again as we have seen him, a sense being loved and being aware of it, loving and being aware of it, being aware in general and loving it, response and success on all creative fronts, intelligent feedback and selective dialogue. Telling you the zone in a more well level and expensive mechanical miniatures. According to my inspirational elders, mirth and chuckle. She turns her head and looks at the building out of the corner of her eye. Then she looks in the other direction. Understood everything herself. Thanks, she said. I think I get it. You gave me yourself there, or a piece of yourself. with selfless, altruistic, and spiritual. Gandhi, other Eastern figures, gurus, choices through their egos, the Levian perspective disrobes. I think I understand. It's about being open for suggestion, open for being open. That sounds just right, he replied, but enough. 